It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 125, King Solomon and the City of Palmyra. Even as Solomon continues his 13-year project of building his palace, he's very active with the building up of the walls of Jerusalem, planning for other palaces, writing proverbs, and starting to marry more wives, in addition to planning and building new cities. Here's an interesting account of what he does with Hiram, his buddy and fellow king from Tyre. This is from Josephus. Solomon, who was then king of Jerusalem, sent riddles to Hiram, and desired to receive the like from him, but that he could not solve them would pay the other a substantial sum of money, and that Hiram accepted the conditions, and when he was not able to solve the riddles proposed by Solomon, he paid a great deal of money for his fine. Hilarious. This is like Obama sending the Queen of England riddles with the condition that $10 million would be paid for each riddle not solved, and they would go back and forth. Great, huh? Well, Solomon scores at this, and it appears he was winning the contest, and with it, boatloads of treasure was shipped to Solomon. Well, Hiram gets upset, and he scrambles, and finds a brilliant youth in his kingdom to assist him. Josephus continues, Under this king, this is Hiram he's talking about, there was a beeman, a very youth and in his age, who was always conquering, and he discovered him, and he was conquering the difficult problems which Solomon, king of Jerusalem, commanded him to explain. He goes further. Hiram proposed other riddles, which when Solomon could not solve them, he paid back a great deal of money to Hiram. So Hiram got Solomon back, but that's $10 million to the Queen of England. This was like high-stakes poker from two players who had too much money anyways. Now that we covered Solomon's relations with Tyre, let's examine the Solomon and Egypt relationship. In our episode titled 970 BC, Egypt from Exodus to Solomon, we considered Egyptian history from a different perspective. In this episode, we plotted the potential for Solomon's wife to be Nephrobiti, the daughter of Pharaoh Thutmosis I. Solomon has forged a relationship with Egypt, and when the entire Egyptian escort shows up for Solomon's wedding to the princess of Egypt early in his reign, there was much pomp and ceremony. In fact, the sheer quantity of chariots that rolled into Jerusalem must have been staggering, and the horses quartered near the town must have been an oddity for this time period. Solomon probably looked with awe at the power projected by Pharaoh's chariots, the tanks of his day, as they rolled into Jerusalem. The princess must have been in a jewel-encrusted golden chariot as it arrived. Solomon must have been impacted, because the first time in Israel's history, we have a king fascinated with horses, horse-dealing, and chariots, and even chariot cities. What follows is a slow burn, as Solomon probably starts small with a few royal chariots. Then he considers, hmm... We can make some money by dealing chariots with Egypt and reselling them to the northern neighbors. Then he ups his stock of horses, adding more chariots annually. 
So as we cover this section, try to picture what a chariot city would look like. Just sounds like something right out of Egypt. 1 Kings 10.26 Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at a current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. So Kent help but notice he had 1,400 chariots and 14,000 or 12,000 horses in chariot cities. Chariot cities? That's crazy. Entrapped in these verses is that silver was as common in Jerusalem as stones, indicating the profits from his horse trade most likely brought in substantial quantities of silver. Then there was the crazy expensive chariot example, and they exported them. Solomon was clearly in the horse business. So here's an interesting question. Was this wrong? Well, business wasn't wrong, but what about arms dealing? What about equipping Israel's future enemies with chariots? Shipping chariots out for royal processions of other kings? Okay. But what about war chariots? Was he arming Israel's future enemies? The horse business wasn't exactly wrong, but Moses' ancient warning to the kings was to not go back to Egypt for horses and to accumulate them. Clearly Joshua hamstrung those chariot horses generations ago for a reason, and David did the same. Solomon's strength was to be in the Lord, not by chariots or horses. This was a failing of Solomon, but not specifically the one that destroys him. Another thing, there was another command to not accumulate treasure. Well, Solomon was promised to be blessed with wisdom and honor and even wealth. Wealth wasn't bad for Solomon, but the example left by David was the right one. David took his wealth and gave it to the temple, whose gold was melted down and became the floor, walls, and ceiling of the temple. Solomon's gold imports are going to be staggering, and let's keep an eye on what he does with it. Does he commit it and give it to the Lord, or does it just accumulate in his treasuries? Solomon the businessman trades riddles with foreign kings, conducts naval expeditions, builds palaces, trades horses. What about founding new cities? Solomon founded or built up many cities in Israel, but Josephus gives us a very interesting account of an oasis city that he built up, and it's one that's common in our news today. Here's Josephus regarding Solomon's founding of cities, and specifically one in modern Syria. Nay, Solomon went as far as the desert above Syria, and possessed himself of it, and built there a very great city, which was distant two days' journey from the upper Syria, and one day's journey from Euphrates, and six long days' journey from Babylon the Great. Now the reason why this city lay so remote from the parts of Syria that are inhabited is this, that below there is no water to be had. That is, unto this place, only that there are springs and pits of water, 
And when he had therefore built this city and encompassed it with very strong walls, he gave it the name of Tadmor. And that is the name it is called by to this day among the Syrians. But the Greeks, they call it Palmyra. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we can't help but continue talking about Palmyra. Palmyra today is smack dab in the middle of Syria and became Solomon's northern trading center. It'll go on to become part of the Silk Road from the eastern regions of the world to Babylon, Palmyra, to Damascus, to Tyre, and to Europe. Palmyra will go on to become a very important city in world history, and its wealth and fame would spread, and it would reach its height in the time of Queen Zenobia in 270 AD, when she challenged the power of Rome, conquering Egypt and expanding into modern Turkey before being conquered. The Romans will eventually destroy Palmyra, and it'll be rebuilt and conquered many times over, and you can still see the ruins today of the ancient times on the internet and see clearly why it's declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But it was last May when Palmyra became front page news again, when ISIL or ISIS captured the city from the Syrian government forces as part of the Syrian civil war. Many of the historic sites have been destroyed by ISIS, and I read an account of a man who gave his life to Palmyra. In fact, he loved Palmyra and its history so much he gave his life for it. He's not a Christian, per se, but he was a man who did love history and the city of Palmyra. I read a story from the BBC website to give an account and, to, and for us to kind of feel his story and to understand it more. Here it is. Khalid al-Sad had been held for about a month by the group which seized the UNESCO World Heritage Site in May. The 81-year-old's family informed Syrian Director of Antiquities, Mamoun Abdul Karim, that he had been beheaded. Mr. Karim said ISIS militants had tried to extract information from Mr. Assad about where some treasures were hidden. He described Mr. Assad as one of the most important pioneers in Syrian archaeology in the 20th century. His murder has been denounced as a horrific act by UNESCO, the UN cultural organization. They killed him because he would not betray his deep commitment to Palmyra, UNESCO Director General Bokiva said in a statement. His work will live on far beyond the reaches of these extremists, she said. They murdered a great man, but they will never silence history. ISIS has destroyed several ancient sites in Iraq, and there are fears that will destroy Palmyra, one of the archaeological jewels of the Middle East. So I read this article, and I was struck with the statement, they murdered a great man, but they will never silence history. And as a history podcast, we're gripped with the significance of what's going on in Syria. According to recent statistics, there's over half of Syria's 23 million people before the War of the Arab Spring, which started in 2011. Half of them over 11 million are displaced and had to move or left their homes. Of those 11 million, 4 million or more, as of today, um, have actually fled the country. And it's the worst refugee crisis since the Rwandan refugee crisis, which occurred over 20 years ago. 
So as I write this and we discuss how Solomon founded Palmyra and its ancient ruins and the old city is being destroyed by war, I'm gripped with the significance of it. And as I write the words for this script, I'm really, you know, kind of torn inside and for the crisis and the people involved in Syria. And I can't think of a better way to end this episode but to pray for the refugees and the people of Syria. Um, and at the same time, ask you to pray as well. So, here we go. God, we pray for you to have your way in Syria. God, we pray that you set things in motion and set the right people in power and bring stability to the country. God, we pray that you show people their homes again. God, we pray that you bring justice where there needs to be justice, mercy where there needs to be mercy. God, we pray for the country of Syria and the area around it to have peace again, and for you to rule in authority and power, not man's power, but God's power. God, we pray for you to continue to reveal yourself to those who are locked in prisons, spiritual prisons, God, those who do not know you. God, we pray you continue to reveal yourself to those who have no other way to know you but through dreams and visions and encounters. God, we thank you for your work that you're doing in the Arab world or the Muslim world, God, that you're encountering those that don't hear your gospel with the sheer um, presence of yourself, um, that people are coming to the knowledge of you even without encountering evangelists and teachers. Um, Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing. We pray, despite this tragedy, um, that you work mighty signs and miracles and people come to know you um, in a greater measure, that despite war, there's a harvest field, God. God, we pray for boldness and that you send labors into the harvest fields as well. That instead of darkness reigning, let there be light and salvation to come to those deceived. God, we pray for the refugees millions of them, that you give them a grace, that provision is provided, and no matter the motives and the reasons or political agendas of people, those who bring the homeless in, God, I pray that they're always provided for, um, that the those homeless, the refugees are provided for, and they feel and encounter the love of God, Lord. Lord, I pray that those who bless the refugees, they love the sinner, but they hate the sin. God, I just pray that they're able to actually love people despite um, their past, their traditions, their heritage, if they're not godly. Lord, I pray that, that there is an honor there and there's a, a presence of love and a presence of mercy that can come to anyone who encounters the refugees and have compassion to help them. Let all humble themselves and seek your help. Let all of them find you, God. Let all who provide for the refugees be blessed with abundance necessary to care for them. Let there be wisdom and let there be God's hand and grace extended to all refugees who earnestly seek you, God. Let those who take advantage of the crisis be exposed and let your light shine for all to see. In the midst of war and crisis, God, I pray you meet all who cry out to you, and even those who never called or heard your name before. And we pray for thousands. And God, it was in Syria, in Damascus, where you encountered a religious terrorist named Paul. 
You blinded him. You encountered him. You delivered him. You transformed him, God. God, I pray that this is the place where you did that for Paul. You can do it again, God. Lord, I pray for thousands of Damascus Road experiences. And let the 1040 window become the place of your greatest visitation and your peace on earth. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.